Let me pray for our time together. Father, thank you so much just for the way that those songs we sang just led us into the reminder of these rich discoveries we've made in your word in the first four chapters of Genesis. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you encourage us through worship. Thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us so particularly in your word and in our community. And I just pray that right now you would bring something alive in our hearts from this scripture that is a word from your lips to our hearts. I pray that we would just let all of the stresses of the day wash away and that we would have ears to hear from you. I pray, Lord, the words I speak would bring you glory. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you about a man named Edwin Thomas. He lived a long time ago. This is what he looked like. Um, He was born into an acting family in 1833, and actually he was the master of stage in the late 1800s, very famous actor in his day, and he was known as uh, being a small man with a huge voice. Um, At the age of 15, he had already established himself as a premier Shakespearean actor, and he became famous actually for playing Hamlet, where he actually played 100 consecutive nights of Hamlet, which was quite a feat in those days. In London, he won the approval of the toughest British critics for his acting skills. He had two brothers. One brother was named John, and the other brother was named Junius. The three boys were born to the same mother and father, but the parents weren't married, so they were considered illegitimate children in a day when that was really quite scandalous. And this sort of um, label on these boys created a lot of rivalry between the three of them. And his brothers also went into the acting field, but they didn't have the notoriety that um, Edwin had. So there was a lot of competition in that. Well, in 1863... The three siblings came together and they performed Julius Caesar. And Edwin's brother, John, played the role of Brutus in this role of of Julius Caesar, which was a really kind of eerie thing considering what happened later. This brother, John, who played the assassin of Julius Caesar, he's the same John that in real life became the assassin in Ford's theater in in 1865. It was when he snuck into the rear box of that theater and he fired a bullet into the head of Abraham Lincoln. So the name of this brother was John Wilkes Booth and Edwin was Edwin Thomas Booth. So after that night, Edwin's life was never the same. And in fact, he took an early retirement from acting because he felt so much shame from this crime that his brother had committed, which was, of course, notorious. Everybody knows the name of John Wilkes Booth. But what he didn't know was that the year previous to this assassination, Edwin had been waiting for a train on a New Jersey um, train platform when a young man who was really nicely dressed was kind of getting tousled in the crowd and he actually fell down between the train and the train at the tracks and an oncoming train. And Edwin had just 
instantly reacted. He had jumped onto the tracks. He had actually wrapped his leg around an iron railing, and he dangled, and he grabbed this young man, and he pulled him up and saved his life. And this young man saw Edwin and instantly knew who he was because he was famous. But Edwin didn't know who this young man was that he had rescued until several years later he got a letter from Colonel Adams Badeau, who is the chief secretary to General Ulysses S. Grant. And in this letter, Ulysses Grant personally thanked Edwin Booth for saving the life of the child of an American hero, Abraham Lincoln. So how ironic that one brother kills the president and the other brother saves the life of the president's son. The one that he saved was Robert Todd Lincoln. And he didn't even know that that had happened until years afterwards. He never knew who this young man was that he had saved. And I think of how funny it goes in families, right? Where you have these two brothers, the three brothers really, they have the same mother, they have the same father, they have the same profession, they're all in acting, they grow up in the same household in the same town, and yet one chooses life and the other chooses death. How could that happen? We don't know, but we know that that is what happens and their story, although it's really dramatic, it's not unique. How many of you have children who are just radically different than each other? then they come out of the same parents, right? Well, Abel and Cain were both sons of Adam and Eve, and God um, choose, and Abel chooses God, and Cain chooses murder. And it seems like in every age of history and through every page of Scripture, the truth is just revealed that God allows us to make our own choices. So in our lesson this week, we looked at so much, didn't we? We looked at creation. We saw that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created. And we looked at the creation of man, where God said he was, the creation of man was very good. And the first woman being created in marriage. We saw the fall of man into sin, which we touched on last week. We covered a lot of things. But what I wanted to talk about tonight is how the entrance of sin into the world changes everything. And though we talked about Adam and Eve's sin a little bit last week. Today I want to dive deep into the story of their children, Cain and Abel. I want to talk about how sin gets passed on from generation to generation, and we're going to see how there are ripple effects um, to future generations when we disobey God. We're going to look at um, Cain's decision in Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16, and then we're going to look at Cain's descendants, what happens in his future lineage in Genesis 4, 17 through 24, and what we're going to learn is that disobeying God produces ripple effects upon self and society. Are you with me? Here we go. If you have a Bible, open it up, but I'll put the passages up on the screen. It's always great if you can connect your eye to your own Bible as well. But let's begin in in Genesis 4, chapter 1, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Okay, Eve knew, of course, that Adam had been made from the dust of the earth, that God had breathed life into him. She knew that she had been made from the rib of man, that she had come from Adam. And now she says, well, with the help of the Lord, she's now created with her own body and with Adam's body, a second generation of men. Now, The name Cain actually means acquired. And so she's named him a name that signifies that she knows that this person has been born. His life has been acquired from God. But Abel's name means frail. 
And so that signifies that she understood that also human life would now be frail. I wonder if actually Abel was more frail, if there was something about him that was weaker or more delicate than his brother Cain. Certainly there was some difference there. Um, Both sons are given work to do as they are now living outside the Garden of Eden. So now they're toiling, they're working. Um, It says now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So Cain is a farmer and he's tilling the soil and growing food and Abel is shepherding the flocks. One of the conditions of the fall, if you remember from Genesis chapter 3, is that man is now going to have to work hard to provide food for his family. Food is not going to flow freely anymore from the branches that hang in the trees in the garden of paradise. It's not going to just drop. It's not going to sprout from the ground, you know, just easy to grab. It's now going to require toil. There's going to be some toiling of the soil, some digging, some difficulty, probably tilling and fertilizing and watering. It's just going to be a lot harder. So um, it's interesting that there's, we now kind of see this change that's occurred in how they are having to live their lives outside the garden. Now remember this was the curse that God had spoken upon the earth in Genesis three seventeen and 18. This is what God had said to Adam as a judgment for sin. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So both boys are now having to work to produce grain and meat. Um, But it's interesting to just observe that Cain's work with this hard soil and the thistles and the rocks and all that is more closely associated with the curse than Abel's seem to be. Abel's work seems to be more closely associated with the kind of life that Adam had before the fall. You know, watching over the flocks, watching over the animals. It seems that maybe that was a little bit easier work than Cain, which is the backbreaking work of tilling the soil. So it's possible that there was some resentment already happening between these two sons because of the type of work that they had, but both of them are definitely feeling the effects of sin thanks to their parents, right, who introduced sin into the world. It says then, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flocks and of their fat portions. Sacrifices were always offered with a heart of worship and thanksgiving. It was customary over time that at the end of the agricultural season, sacrifices would be brought, and it would just be to say, Lord, thank you for how you've provided for us. So this was um, interesting that Cain's sacrifice wasn't regarded the way that Abel's was. We have to assume that possibly God had taught Adam and Eve something about blood sacrifices after he killed the animals to provide clothing. It could have been very clear in that time that sacrifices needed to be from an animal. Shed blood was the required sacrifice. We don't really know. Um, We know we saw last week that that was something that was done to cover the silt and, and the guilt, the silt, the guilt and sin of Adam and Eve. And could have been that they shared that with their boys, like this is the only appropriate sacrifice. Um, we don't know, but it could be that God had taught them. Um, it didn't, whether they had known this or not, it's clear that what Cain brought wasn't pleasing to the Lord. 
it wasn't his best. Because it says then the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Why did he accept one and not the other? Was it because Cain's heart condition wasn't right? We know that Abel's offering was elaborate. It was the, it was the firstborn of his flock. It was the best of the best. Um, the Lord accepted it, but he rejected Cain's offering, and it's possibly because it was from just the fruit of the ground. I don't know if that means it was just fruit he picked up off the ground or if it was just fruit of the ground and it was meant to be something greater. But regardless, it wasn't his best. He wasn't offering the Lord his best the way that Abel was. And God saw that his heart wasn't a true heart of worship. It was a good enough kind of heart. Now, Cain's offering um, really reveals a little bit of the bitterness and the anger that was inside of him. His attitude wasn't an attitude full of gratitude. It was an attitude full of resentment and rebellion. And why was that? Why was it that he was not giving his best to the Lord? I think about putting myself in his shoes, and I wonder if he was somehow angry that because of his parents' sin, he now had to live outside of the garden. I wonder if there wasn't blame about that. I wonder if he didn't look across the pasture land and see those angels with flaming swords guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden and feeling like if he were just in there, he would have an abundance of food, he wouldn't have to work, the fruit would fall from the trees, he'd had everything he needs, there'd be peace and harmony, and why couldn't he have lived over there? You know, we feel that way sometimes, right? I wonder if he wasn't resentful um, because he might have thought, well, Abel had the easier job. How hard is it to stand and watch a bunch of animals eat pasture land where he had to do the back-breaking work in the fields? Was there resentment and jealousy about that? Or was it that he could look at Abel and see how he so naturally worshipped God where he felt like he didn't want to worship God the way that his brother did? You know, sometimes being the firstborn comes with a lot of added pressure and responsibility. And maybe he felt that in his relationship with his brother. Whatever the reason, Cain has this deep root of resentment and rebellion taking hold of his heart. We begin to see that as the story unfolds more and more, but it reminds me of how dangerous it is when a seed of bitterness or anger or resentment takes hold of your heart. You know that feeling? It can be just kind of something that's seething in the background, something with you and your husband, something with you and a child, something with a neighbor, something with a friend, where it's just, it's not really a full-blown anything yet, but it's just kind of festering in the background. There's a tree that's called the Brazilian walnut tree, and it's this majestic, tall, glorious tree. I think it comes in the, it grows in the rainforest, and it's the most beautiful tree. I got a picture of it to show you. But what's interesting is that tree has one enemy, and it's called the strangler fig. And what happens is when a seed of a strangler fig falls on the leaf or a branch of a Brazilian walnut tree, it begins to take hold, and it sends down shoots. And it begins to encase the trunk of the tree in vines, and it goes down into the ground, and it continues to just wind and wind and wind until finally it literally chokes out the life of this tree. And then the tree then begins to die, and what you, begin to, what you end up looking at is what looks like a tree in the shape of a bunch of vines, but the tree inside is actually dead, and all you see is vines in the shape of a tree because the, the strangler fig has literally strangled the life out of the tree. And I thought about this is what sin and bitterness does to our lives. 
It's what it does to our relationships. It's what it does to our relationship with God. It, it, can take a, it can become a stronghold. It can start to choke out the life in us. As I was just doing this lesson this week, I was um, thinking, oh, I'm so glad I don't feel this way towards anyone. And you know how the first, as soon as you say that, it's like, oh, I do have something in like this in the background of my life. Like the Lord just brought it to my mind and I don't quite know what to do with it, but there is a relationship where I, if I imagine that strangler fig, it's starting to wrap around and I have to, to pray about how to respond to that. But is there any seed of bitterness or resentment in you? And even in this context, when we're thinking about family, let's just start with the family. Sometimes these bitternesses come because of the family we grew up in. It could be that you became the object of verbal abuse or physical abuse or alcohol addiction, something that's created pain for you, and how do you work out that resentment if it takes hold in you? Or maybe there's sibling rivalry. Maybe there was favoritism in your family. One, one sibling got better attention than the other. Or maybe you're like me, the firstborn, so you bore all the responsibility. Or maybe there's a sibling who had it easier than you have had it easier, and there's some jealousy that's sort of lingering in the background. It's so complicated in families, isn't it? And so I think this is just kind of a wake-up call to say, are we paying attention to these things that we can sort of dismiss, but they can start to shoot down roots and start to encase our hearts? Well, this... this, um, the Lord saw that this was what was going on in Cain's heart, and so the Lord gave him a warning. He called it out, shed light all over it. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The Hebrew word actually means that he was burning with anger. So we know that he's seething with anger. And the Lord is asking him, why are you so downcast? He, the Lord is actually giving him an opportunity to recognize and to repent, to actually make a different kind of a choice. He's saying to him, like Cain, I love you just as much as I love your brother Abel. He's saying, just do what is right and you can actually master sin. Sin doesn't have to master you. It's interesting that sin is personified as a a crouching beast that's ready to pounce on him and and ready to dominate him. And so what's happening is his anger is making him really susceptible to this evil influence. But he has a choice. And God is showing him, look, I see your heart, and this is what you're experiencing, and this is the danger that you're in, but you can choose right now not to make this decision. But Cain didn't want mastery over sin, and it's The scripture indicates that rather almost immediately after having this encounter with God, he goes and murders his brother. It says in verse 8 that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. The language here indicates this was premeditated. He had already decided this is what he wanted to do, and even though the Lord tried to get him to turn and not have sin master over him, he decided to do it anyway. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is a rhetorical question. It reminds us of when Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden after they had sinned and they covered themselves with fig leaves and they were hiding maybe behind the trees and God walks into the garden and he's like, where are you? Of course he knows where they are. He's God. 
In the same way, he knows what's happened. He knows what, what Cain has done to Abel, but he's not calling to, to, to get more information. He's trying to solicit a confession. He's trying to say, just tell me, just confess, just repent. But Cain, he responds with a lie. He denies any responsibility for his brother. He shows no remorse and no repentance. And he, at this point, made a decision not to confess, but rather to deny and to, um, to lie. He could have requested forgiveness. In that moment, he could have asked, oh, Lord, I did a terrible thing. Please forgive me. But he didn't. His heart is even harder now. And so the Lord pronounces a judgment on Cain. It says, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. He can't hide his evil deed from God. God sees. He says, the blood of your brother cries out to me. Later on in scripture, in in the book of Numbers, which we'll get to later, it talks about how um, the blood, shed blood, actually literally pollutes the land. So, He's saying that because that Cain has now defiled the soil with his brother's blood, now the soil is no longer going to yield him food. It's no longer going to sprout forth crops. And he is actually now supposed to leave the land. He's now going to be a fugitive upon the earth. He's to be a wanderer. He's not to have a home. He's going to be cast out. He's going to be separated from God's blessing. He's going to be separated from the land. He's going to be separated from his family. He's cast away. This is such a picture of what sin does. Sin separates us. It separates us from what's good. It separates us from God's blessing. But it also separates us from relationship. You know, when we sin, we break relationship. We break relationship with God. We break relationship with each other. But it also disintegrates us. You know, it, it, it separates. It tears us apart. And so what... God is pronouncing as a punishment on Cain is such a picture of just what sin does. It just rips apart. So Cain then protests his punishment. He doesn't like it. Doesn't that remind you of your kids? Like, no, you can't send me to my room. They don't, we don't like to be punished. And so Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. One of the mistakes we make is we read the Genesis story and we think, well, who's going to find him? It's only Adam and Eve, Abel's dead, and Cain, right? What we don't understand is that their lives lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. And there were many, many, many more children that were born. Of course, many women were born girls were born. So everybody who is going to know Cain is going to somehow be related to the family. So he's going to be in danger of someone wanting to avenge Abel's murder by hurting Cain. But just notice that Cain is not remorseful at all about his evil deed. He is only upset about the consequences of his sin. He, he fears that he's going to get killed. He doesn't, he doesn't feel sorrowful for what he's done by murdering his brother. I was thinking about how oftentimes people today who do the kinds of crimes that are really vile, like hurting children, 
when they go into prison, they're terrified that someone's going to kill them because there are just certain types of crimes that prisoners will kill each other over. And so often they have to be put in solitary confinement just for their own protection. But the Lord um, says to him, he says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We don't know what that mark was. I wonder what it was. But the thing is that God is offering Cain mercy. He's offering him protection. He's sparing his life. But Cain's story has become a warning for all generations about sin and about disobedience, about murder. And what's interesting is as we go into the New Testament, if we go to Jude verse 11, it specifically says, woe to them who have taken the way of Cain. His whole reputation is a don't be like this guy. This did not go well for him. But the truth that I see here is that God's kindness towards us is meant to lead us to repentance and forgiveness. For us, that comes through Christ because we live on the other side of the cross. For, for them, it, it went to just believing in God's word. But the reality is that God was kind to Cain. He offered him opportunity after opportunity for repentance. He was, he, God saw his hard heart and he personally spoke to him and he warned him that there was danger. He saw his intentions. He said, sin is going to have mastery over you if you don't turn. He gave Cain an opportunity to choose faith. He had an opportunity before he murdered his brother to go get the proper sacrifice, whether it was an animal, which he would have had to purchase probably from his brother to sacrifice, or whether it was just the best of the land. He could have stopped, gotten the proper sacrifice, and worshiped God in a heart of thanksgiving and, and gratitude. But he didn't. He didn't take that opportunity. He didn't take the opportunity to receive forgiveness and set his relationship right with the Lord. But then notice, even after he murdered his brother, Cain had the opportunity to repent. God even protected his life from being brutally murdered and by someone who would avenge his brother's death. And we see God's kindness over and over to him. He could have at any time said, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake, will you forgive me? But he never did. He just was mad about the consequences. All of God's kindness, all of his mercy, all of his protection should have or could have tenderized his heart and allowed him to turn and experience forgiveness, to repent of what he had done. You know, that's what Romans 2.4 says. It says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Repentance is such a simple term, really, it's to feel sorrowful, to feel remorse over sin. We live in a generation where we don't even like to call anything sin. So our first hurdle is just to say, ah, that's sin, and then to say, and I feel badly about that. I actually feel regret and remorse over that. And then more than just feeling that about sin, repentance is to turn actually away from it to actually turn away from the pursuit of sin and turn towards the arms of God, to run to him as a daughter, fall into his arms, and experience the forgiveness that he offers. 
That's what repentance, and repentance and faith go hand in hand because before we even come to faith in Christ, we have to be first awakened to the fact that we are sinners and that we have fallen so far short of his holy standards and that he calls us to a life much higher and better than the life we're living on our own apart from him that there is grace for us and there is forgiveness available to us. So we first have to have sort of an awakening to the fact that we're sinners and then we have to choose to turn from that sin and turn to Christ in faith. It's one of the first steps. And then when we realize what he's done for us on the cross to provide forgiveness, it should tenderize our hearts. It should make us soft and desiring to worship him and to love him as our savior. The great news is that because of Christ, we will never be banished from God's presence. We will never be cast out away from him. We'll always know that we can run to his arms and receive forgiveness and restoration. What is the condition of your heart? This passage awakened me to some things I need to deal with with the Lord. What is the condition of your heart before the Lord? Is it tough or is it tender? Are you sorrowful about sin Or do you justify your sin? I think there's times when we can say, I can do this because of this. I can act this way because this person did this. I'm justified in my bitterness and resentful because of this that happened. And so oftentimes we rationalize or justify our hard-hearted feelings, but we have to realize that that's sin. And um, are we really sorrowful about our sin or are we just sad about the consequences that happen as a result of it? Have you received the grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers? Are you willing to turn from those attitudes or actions and run back to your Savior? Maybe there's a sinful activity or an attitude in your life that you really haven't been ready to part with. Maybe there's something that you're holding on to or something that you're just stewing on or even you just haven't been ready to turn from it. I just want to encourage you that there's a, today's a fresh day. Tonight's a fresh night. Tomorrow's a fresh morning. There's a new start that can be made. I think Cain's life is such a warning to us. It, he's, the warning is that sin will harden our hearts. That if we don't take the opportunity to repent when God taps us on the shoulder and spotlights it for us, if we don't turn from it, our hearts get a little bit harder and then a little bit harder and then a little bit harder. And pretty soon it's like that strangler vine that wraps around our lives, wraps around our hearts and starts to hollow us out inside. So we need to pay attention and look at Cain's example that God is calling us to repent, to turn, to run to him, and receive the love and grace that he offers. I want to touch briefly on what happens next in Cain's life because I think this is where we really see redemption. This is the place where it just got me excited about how this story ends. But first, in verse 17, it says that Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Okay, so Cain, you understand he wasn't supposed to work, he wasn't able to work the land anymore. So he was banished, right? He's supposed to be a fugitive and a wanderer upon the earth. But what does he do? He builds a city. I don't think that is being a fugitive anymore. He decides he's going to plant some roots. He's going to build a city for himself, and he's going to name it after his son. So he's trying to gain some notoriety for himself. He's actually disobeying again the consequences of his sin. He's supposed to have no place to call home. But it's so ironic because I think of Cain trying to build a city and trying to name it after his son and trying to become famous for his son, Enoch. But what is Cain really famous for? In Scripture, 
Through all of eternity, we all know Cain for killing his brother Abel. We don't even know of a city called Enoch. In fact, when the flood came, it wiped all of that out. Cain is famous in scripture and always will be for his great disobedience to God. Anyway, we don't know who Cain married. We don't, aren't given the name of his wife. We know that there were six generations of descendants that followed his line. And in the fourth generation, he um, had a descendant named Lamech. Lamech was born, and in Lamech's day, there were many new beginnings that, that happened in civilization. Um, first of all, Lamech had two wives. So as far as we know, this was the first um, episode of a man being a bigamist. And this was not God's plan for marriage. We know God's plan was one woman and one man from Genesis 2. So this um, taking multiple wives continued on through early civilization and was a huge problem uh, for people. It never, you can imagine, it would never go well for a man to take more than one wife. (laughs) So this was a big problem, but he was the first that we know who did that. But then he had three sons who were innovators. His first son was Jabel, and he was the inventor of tents, so Uh, dwellings. And then he had a son, Jubal, and he was the innovator of musical instruments. And then he had a son, Tubal-Cain, who invented um, weapons and tools. So from Cain's descendants, some really innovative things happened in society, in civilization. These were really good things. But everything that we can tell is that this line of descendants were very, very far from God. They were godless. And in fact, Lamech ends up following in Cain's footsteps and murders someone. And then he writes the first poetry in scripture, somewhat celebrating this murder that he committed. It says in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So he's boasting to his wives that he killed a man for merely wounding him. And he's boasting that if God had avenged the murder, a murder like Cain seven times, then how much more would he do that? Seventy times seven times he would do it for, for Lamech. He clearly has no fear of God and is not even using God's name in his poetry. So Cain's legacy was one of godlessness. Um, he, his legacy was productive in many ways for civilization, but it was a legacy of faithfulness. And what's interesting is that um, this is what we see through Cain's descendants, but only for six generations, because after six generations, Noah's flood happened and all of Cain's descendants were wiped out. So the truth that I see here is that the ripple effect of our faith in God can change future generations. We see the ripple effect of Cain's disobedience and how it impacted future generations. But the opposite is also true, that the ripple effects of our faith in God can also change generations. I always love that example of like two ships on the ocean. And and if one just makes the slightest change in navigation, it's going to be in a completely different place down the road. And it's the same way, like when we follow Christ and we make the slightest change in navigation with our faith... We can end up in a totally different place, and that will have impact on generations that follow us. How we live our lives really matters, and people are watching us. You know, your children are watching you. They're listening to you. I always think that my kids will probably never remember anything I ever said to them, but I think they'll remember who I am as a person. 
And they're actually watching that more than they're watching what I say. They're watching the consistency of my life. They're watching the private moments of my life. They're watching how I react to things behind closed doors. They're paying attention, and they're making decisions for their own lives based on what they see me doing or my husband doing. So who are you, and what is the legacy of faith that you want to pass on to the next generation? Maybe it's your children, or maybe it's your grandchildren, or I don't think any of you are old enough to have great-grandchildren, but it could be that there's going to be descendants after you that you get to share your faith with. What stories about repentance and forgiveness and transformation do you want your descendants to know that are specifically related to your faith? What, what they can know about God through their relationship with you. This has brought up something that is sort of happening right now in my family, and that is that we have a young girl. I say young girl. She's 32. It feels young to me. She's living with our family right now, and she's a family friend. We have a cabin across the road from their cabin, and so um, I have known her parents since before she was born. Our kids have been raised together. She feels very much like a sister to my boys. But for the most part, our lives have only intersected for like two weeks in the summer. So we have a great sense of knowing each other over a span of time, but it's so different when you actually are living with somebody. She got a job here at Nike, and she's looking for a place to live, and she's just kind of enjoying being with family while she's looking. So her, she's been living with our family, and she's been making a lot of observations. And her observations have been so sweet. I mean, she said, oh my gosh, you and her husband are so kind to each other, and you enjoy each other so much, and you're such good friends, and you don't argue, and you and your boys and your relationship is so kind, and the boys treat each other so nice. I mean, my boys are men, but she's, she's hanging around my family, and she's making these observations about how peaceful, and she'll say, I feel so safe here, and I feel so comfortable, and I feel so loved. And it's, it's sweet, but I just couldn't let her continue without telling her some of the rest of the story because what she's observing about our family, that's not how we began. We, one night I just said, I, I just have to tell you, like, thank you for saying these kind things, but, like, this is the fruit of our relationship with Christ. We began with a marriage that was rooted in anger and addiction, and we barely made it. And then our son was diagnosed with this disease, and we were tested at every turn. And, and you know, so often I wanted to leave, and my husband was unkind, and I was mad. And it's like it didn't—this is not just who we are. This is who we've become in Christ. And what you're observing is 35 years of marriage and 40-something years of walking with the Lord through thick and thin. And this is— the fruit of living in Christ in the midst of a broken world with a lot of real-life struggles. She doesn't know Christ as her Savior. Boy, is she in trouble living in my household. <laughs> We're having a lot of good conversations. But God is the hero of our story. Jesus is the hero of our story. Is he the hero of your story? Do you have something to pass on to the next generation about who is the hero of your story? What I love is that's how this passage ends. God is the hero of Genesis 4 because look what happens in verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. 
And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's revival. Seth's life is associated with a godly lineage of descendants. And his birth is associated with revival. People called upon the name of the Lord. That is such a beautiful act of redemption because we see generation after generation as we're going to go and study more and more of Genesis that this generation believed and followed God and followed his word and obeyed him. And in fact, this Seth's lineage is the lineage that Noah came out of. And as we'll see very shortly, God was so displeased with the heart condition of mankind, the godlessness of people like Cain and his descendants. But he was so pleased with the faith of Noah that when the flood came, only Noah and his family survived. So God will always preserve a remnant of people who keep the knowledge of him alive to the next generation. He has done that for thousands of years. There is always a remnant of people who believe and keep the knowledge of him alive. And that is our calling. Our calling isn't just to believe for ourselves. Our calling is to believe and not just speak out what we believe, but to believe with the whole fabric of our lives. That as our children and our children's children and our neighbors and our friends and those people who we engage with actually don't just hear about Jesus, they actually see the transforming work of God in our lives in such a way that they say, that guy, he's the hero of their story. Jesus is the hero of our story. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this just great warning about the seriousness of sin and the ripple effects on ourselves, on our families, on our societies, but also for the great hope that our lives really matter and that we can live a life of faith and obedience and surrender. We can walk with you through the whole journey of life, and it actually really makes a difference. It makes a difference in our lives, and it makes a difference in the lives of those that are watching us. I pray, Lord, that you will always be the hero of our story and that we will just give you glory with our lives. I thank you for what you're teaching us in your word. Thank you for reminding us that you are God and we are not. And thank you, Lord, for the way that your word reveals so many beautiful aspects of your character. And so, Lord, I pray that our discussions now would be rich and that we would be encouraged in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.